Welcome to another podcast episode, and we're here today with Aaron and Ethan Miller. And today we'll be discussing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Ethan, it's good to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And as we begin to talk about this song, Ethan, what in the world is up with the name Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Yeah, well, we were kind of joking around and we were like, what in the world is this angel named Harold? Yeah, why is he named Harold? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Harold, I think, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but Harold would be the angels that are proclaiming, speaking, heralding um, the good news of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, the, the spelling shows us it's not Harry, like yes. the guy, <laughs> but it's a title for you know someone proclaiming something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and then hark would be something like if I wanted you to listen up, I would say Joshua, hark, listen. I have something to tell you, maybe. I think so. Yeah. That's right. There were, I have a friend. Well, we were friends in high school, and she would always say hark whenever she was trying to get people's attention. And I I think eventually it wasn't you know as you know, demanding of our attention because we heard it all the time. But that, I think that's what's going on. They're just saying, listen up, listen to these angels who are heralding the newborn king. So if we put it all together, then when we hear Hark, the angels sing, we're saying, pay attention, listen up to the the messenger angels. These These angels have something we need to listen to. That's great. Yeah, sometimes I don't think we think too often of that title. We just kind of take it for granted and then just start singing the song. But good to think about what that song is actually about. It's about what the angels are singing and heralding the message. So, Ethan, why should we sing this song? There's thousands of hymns out there. Why this one? Yeah, well, I think there's so many good reasons to sing this song. I I think probably the best reason that we can sing this song in church is because of the rich, rich doctrine mm. that it has for us to remind ourselves of. Um, so so many things. So we've got things um, like salvation, redemption. We have things um, like in the last verse about um, victory over Satan. Mm. We have things mm. talking about how Jesus was fully God and fully man, and this hymn balances those two things so well. So this is such a great way to remind ourselves of good gospel truths, and so we should sing it as much as we can on Christmas, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. So we should sing because there's there's rich theology there. It, it portrays the gospel in a very clear way. It speaks of Christ's birth and his significance. Uh, let, let's talk about that. Uh, what are what are some phrases for for you, Ethan and Aaron, as we look at this song that that convey this this rich theology, this this gospel centeredness that has stood out to you and that we should draw our attention to as we sing these lyrics? Yeah, can I start by saying that there are some things that I'm not fully sure that I understand what's meant by the song, and maybe mm. you guys can help me out there. In verse 1, it says, Peace on earth and mercy mild. I don't know if the definition I have for mild is the definition that is is being you know connotated here or, or whatever the denotation was at the time that this was written. I, I think we would assume that mercy is not mild as in, 
you know, salsa mild, like not effective. <laughs> you can't really tell it's there. Uh, Ethan or, or Josh, <laughs> what does it mean for mercy to be mild? Yeah, I think that's why we have actually Ethan here to explain everything <laughs> there is in the song to us. And I, I'm not sure offhand. I'd have to uh, go off the cuff on the answer there, and I, I don't have a good one. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll just go off the cuff a little bit. Um, but I, I think the mercy, when we sub- see that in relationship to God and sinners reconciled, this mercy is in contrast to God's um, just wrath mm-hmm. that he can give to people. And so this mercy is almost like a, a balm to humanity and that it reconciles sinners with God. I think that'd be my stab at it. That's yeah. just a stab. Yeah, I think that's mm, right. Mm. We we have technology here, and so I Googled mild, and <laughs> it's, a, of course, an adjective, and the second definition is gentle and not easily provoked or soft-hearted, tender-hearted, sensitive, and so it's not that the, the mercy is ineffectual, but that it's a gentle mercy uh, mm. that rains down on us, I think, as we experience reconciliation with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Let's continue speaking about other other phrases in this song that we should draw our attention to. Are there any others that you think we should just look at here? Well, I think that there is a, a theme that is picked up very early and that is the theme of the birth of a child and <laughs> and there are phrases though like in the second verse offspring of the virgin's womb that would be important to talk about that's connected then with the incarnate deity um, Emmanuel which means God with us and then of course in verse Three, you have this idea of this offspring bringing life and light, and um, you know again the incarnation of laying glory by, uh, born to give them second birth. So again, mm-hmm. you have more offspring language, and then the later fourth verse, I think, brings us to a climax where we hear of the desire of nations who's uh, making a home here, but then more explicitly that, that line of rise, the woman's conquering seed. Um, and, and so I think mm. those are all things that we could talk about at great length here. Mm-hmm. That fourth verse, that last verse, uh, maybe you guys grew up singing that verse. I don't really recall ever seeing that, that fourth verse. Um, I think, Ethan, you have that verse in front of you. Yeah. Um, do you mind just reading that for us? And, and then we can talk about this verse that I don't know if many of our people know of. Yeah, so it, it says, uh, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy heavenly throne. Rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. And then the second half says, Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above. Work in us by thy love. When, when was that first written, Ethan, is the hymn history guy? <laughs> yeah, so that was first written by Charles Wesley in 1739. Um, and then um, George Whitfield, uh, thank God for him, uh, kind of got a hold of it and um, helped just work through it a little bit, um, making it a little bit better. Um, anyway... I don't know if I can should go down this road, but I can compare the two a little bit, or we can just compare the two verses the or two com- verses from yeah. Wesley to Whitfield. Yeah, well, I think you should do that. Yeah. So, so Wesley 
who is a very strong Arminian, um, and uh, George Whitfield, who is a fairly strong Calvinist. And and I'm, I'll just clarify and Sorry. say that if yeah. someone identifies as our, an Arminian when we're talking about the doctrine of salvation, uh, it's a bit complex, but they're going to emphasize the free will of man. And if someone identifies as a Calvinist, they're, they're going to emphasize the uh, redeeming grace of God that man would otherwise forever resist. Uh, it's not that neat and clean, but that but that maybe helps. Yeah. Um, and let me just find in it in here. Um, so Wesley in that in that last verse, he says, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And Whitfield said, Second Adam from above, work it in us by thy love. Um, so it's just some interesting, just some interesting now, changes. Now the <laughs> edition that we have that we ah, sang a couple a weeks ago se- had reinstate us in thy love. Mm, yeah. um, and and it, are you saying that's the Whitfield edition or the Wesley? So edition? reinstate would be the Wesley edition. Okay. Yeah. So you guys are holding very closely to the originally written text, which now, is interesting. It, yeah. Read, read Whitfield's again. So Whitfield says, um, work it in us by thy love. Um, that work in us the image. Yes, the image instead of reinstate, which is just an interesting, I don't know what to make of that difference. Yeah, I, I don't think I would label that as a Calvinism-Arminianism difference. Uh, it would be interesting to know what these guys thought about mm. covenants and these sorts of things, but it, it seems like um, uh, probably... Wesley is holding to the idea that the image of God after the sin of man in the garden is sort of lost, and there's this lost state of of being an image oh, bearer or something yeah. like that. And and Wesley might be just suggesting that the, the image might be defaced or marred, but not lost. Uh, um, I, I don't know if that would be hmm, the case, hmm. but that's sort of how it strikes me, because it seems to me that the the reference there would be thine image. Um, oh yeah, you're right. It, it, it yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> um, and yeah. and I think uh, it. I I don't really necessarily agree with either in in terms of after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, you you have a lot that happens, but post flood, it's reaffirmed that one of the reasons you don't kill people and and why there's justice for those you know executed on those that do is because man is made in God's image and. Uh, that it's. I'm not totally sure how to think about these things, but I I don't think we could should conceive of the image of God being lost in any way. But mm. we do have this interesting contrast where the Book of Genesis talks about being made in God's image according to His likeness, and then the New Testament authors pick up on this image language and they mm-hmm. talk about Christ as the exact imprint, mm. the exact image. Um, and, and so there are some guys, and again, I, I'm not totally sure that I look at it this way either, but there are some, some guys like a, a guy named John Kilner, um, who's, who wrote a book called Dignity and Destiny. And he's going to really emphasize that humans by themselves are a reflective image and Jesus is the exact image of God. And we're, we're being made into that mm. image more carefully. Um, inter- interesting difference between those two. Did they have other differences? 
Um, small, minor differences. Um, yeah, not a ton. There's a lot more similarity, actually, in the two than differences. So one of the really fun differences, though, is that Wesley said he started out with, we, ha- we know Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <laughs> he had, Wesley has, Hark how all the Welkin rings. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. And Welkin. The skies? Is that uh, is Yeah, that right? is the skies. The sky or mm-hmm. the heaven. Um, and there's some fun interchange between the two <laughs> that, um, yeah, it, it's, it's just interesting. And, and this is um, how good music gets written, is, mm-hmm. is we have a lot of people working together to make this accessible and mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. and helpful. And so it's fun just to see how God works in these two guys to help mm-hmm. us have a hymn that we have today, which is a beautiful thing. Now, before we go on to the lyrics more, Ethan, since you've looked at this, the melody, is there anything interesting about the melody? Uh, Did they just co-opt a kind of commonly known tune? Um, And if so, do you know any of the history behind that? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they did um, co-opt a tune, but I am unsure which one exactly. I don't uh, know if you know, Josh. I, I remember reading somewhere that the tune that he originally wanted was very slow and uh, yes. more in a minor key and very just somber. And I don't think that was, um, well, obviously that's not what we have today, but I think that there was something to that effect, which is kind of hard to think of singing hard there or angels <laughs> sing to a tune that slow and mm. yeah, in a minor, more sober key. Hmm. Great. Ethan, talk to us more about the words of the song um, <laughs> yeah. that you you and I had communicated briefly, and you had mentioned that you were recently talking with someone about this, and, and you really were able to enjoy reflecting on the meaning of this song. Uh, talk to us about what what maybe should be going through our minds as we're singing this, what questions we should be asking, and, and how we can understand the words of the song is uh, something beneficial for our spiritual yeah. flourishing. Yeah, I think one of the most beautiful things for me to reflect on during Christmas is something called the hypostatic union. So this means that Jesus is fully God, 100%, and f- fully man, 100%. And he gives up in his in his incarnation, in coming um, in flesh as a baby, he gives up nothing of his deity and he holds everything of his humanity. So mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm thinking uh, about Christmas and when I'm singing Christmas songs to hold that truth and to say, how does this song um, relate to these things is a really beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Hark the Herald Angels Sing does this so well, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the second verse. And I'll just read a couple of things that are just so um, help me to worship Christ in his being um, through these words. It it talks about um, uh, Christ Christ by highest heaven adored. We have him in heaven, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. So that's the incarnation. He's the offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So he's giving up nothing of his of his deity 100% deity mm-hmm. 100% man hail the incarnate deity pleased as a as man as a man pleased as a man with men 
to dwell. He's mm-hmm. he's not um, just on earth and then he goes up to heaven, you know, when he wants to get out of, you know, get out mm-hmm. of his suffering. Mm-hmm. He is there to stay until he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which we talked, said that that means that God is with us. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about how Jesus being fully God, veiled in flesh, and incarnate and dwelling with man as a man, not as not as um, mm, uh, mm-hmm. taking on flesh, fully taking on flesh and dwelling with man. And there is a, a connection that we have with him in his humanity, that we are also mankind. And we look to him as, in the last verse, as the second mm-hmm, Adam. Mm-hmm. And we have so much hope in that. So that's just something... Um, and this is true of a lot of Christmas songs, too, is um, to have a good understanding of Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man, and how do those two relate? Christmas helps us to do that, and Christmas songs, good Christmas songs, <laughs> help us to know that well. So um, that's something that I just find extremely worshipful, extremely helpful to me as I sing this song. Mm. Josh, you had a question. Did I have a question? <laughs> Don't think I actually did. Okay, oh, well, no. <laughs> let, let me talk about <laughs> what do do? <laughs> let, let me talk about some things that Ethan uh, hinted at here, and and that is that God was pleased to enter into the into humanity mm-hmm. into this created world, and um, I th- I think that this song draws a lot on the language of the Gospel of John throughout, uh, but especially John one. Um, but but one of the things that I think is interesting about the incarnation and this labeling uh, of Jesus or understanding of Jesus as the desire of nations, uh, mm. we we as Christians think about desire a lot, and I think we can tend to say that desire is a bad thing, and the best thing is just to crush the desire, you know. But but I think a, desire is good; it's given to us. Jesus is the ultimate desire, and, and when we desire the transcendent, you know, the the supreme good, true and beautiful, there, there's a sense in which we're moving toward God. Um, but when when we talk about desires, Christians, we can sometimes hear quotes from Lewis and other, you know, saying things like, when I sense a desire that can't be met in this world, it's a reminder that I'm intended for another world. And I think we hear that outside of Lewis's actual argument, and we start to think of um, the best thing possible is for us to ascend to heaven where our souls are separated from our bodies. But what the incarnation does is it brings God into flesh forever. And and it points us to the resurrection as the the fulfillment of all things in new creation. And in that way, we're very earthy people. And, And that's a good thing. And I think if we mishear songs like this, and if we misconceive of the Christian life as, uh, you know, we we are happy to die because we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, well, that's good. But what the incarnation does is it unites materi- mm. the material world and our spiritual beings forever, because that's how Christ exists post-resurrection in the ascension. And, and that's what he's doing to the world to make a new creation and to renew the image within us, to reinstate us as good creation made in the image of God, reflecting his glory. And I, I think 
as we rightly are cynical about the consumerism that surrounds Christmas, we can veer too far off and say that desire for things is bad. Well, no, we need to allow those desires that we have that we understand are always favorite fading away. And, and desire, when it's met, it it fades away. There's a diminishing return there, and we have another desire. Well, that reminds us of the, of the desire of nations, the Jesus who's made his home with us, and, and that desire should drive us forward to long for, for his return in the new creation. Mm. So we've talked about several different ideas here within this song. We've talked about the hypostatic union. We've talked about Jesus being the desire of nations and the lesser well-known verse for um, any other things in the song that we should draw our attention to. Yeah, I'd like for us to talk about what it means to be the offspring of a woman and <laughs> and talk about what it yeah. means to crush the serpent. Uh, I'm forgetting the words of the song exactly. I should probably be looking at that. <laughs> um, but uh, the this offspring of the woman sure. is called to rise. The woman's conquering seed bruising us the serpent's head. Mm. Uh, well, let's talk about the origin of the language of a woman's conquering seed and of a bruising of a serpent's head. So let's talk about its original introduction mm, to mm-hmm. the biblical vocabulary. And then let's talk about what it means for that to happen in us, this serpent's head that is in us. Mm. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just taking a stab. <laughs> um, I, I would say, I would guess that the first um, reference to the serpent's head is in Genesis 3.15. Would that be correct? Ding, ding, ding. You're Woo-hoo. correct. Yes. <laughs> and God um, promises that um, the serpent's head will be bruised or crushed by the seed mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the woman, meaning the woman's um, progeny or offspring or children. Yeah, that that's virtually correct. Um, virtually? The, yeah. <laughs> Essentially <laughs> correct. The, these texts are interesting because the the language for what, what the seed of the woman will do to the seed of the serpent is the same as what the seed of the serpent will do to the seed of the woman's heel. Heel, yes. You know, it's mm-hmm. strike. You, you kind of have to translate it the same way. Um, and, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it just talks about them being on guard against each other. Uh, so not quite the same language. Uh, but then I, I think the idea is there of a fatal head wound and a less fatal heel mm-hmm. wound. And I think that gets picked up and um, kind of elaborated on later. You know, others like the Apostle Paul says something similar. I mean, he, he says, soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Mm-hmm. And, and so I mm-hmm. think these things get... Um, they get, they get appropriated into the larger theology and there's reflection on it and we can consider it, I think, in that way of uh, conquering and crushing, even though the original text doesn't quite give us that I- mm. idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tracing the whole story of Scripture, that's something you've been doing well at our church, Aaron. And just going back to the beginning, like we've mentioned, we see this promise of the serpent being crushed and going all the way then to revelation in the end. That's exactly what takes place. And we see this rich theology in the song tying all of scripture together, really from the promise in the beginning to in revelation when Satan, that serpent and death is finally crushed once and, and for all. And it's a beautiful thing to reflect on, not just parts of the scripture, but the whole entirety of it and how it will ultimately end for those who are in Christ. So, so um, Aaron, I have a question. 
really quick. What does it mean that um, we should or to say bruise in us the serpent's head? Do I have like a serpent inside of me um, that needs to be like bruised out, or what is? Yeah, What's going on that, there? that's where I wanted to get to. Yeah, next. I'd love so, for you so to good. <laughs> answer that, so I don't have to. <laughs> okay. Well, I was go- I was going to make you. Um, I I think that uh, we we can reflect on the biblical text, and we get this idea that there will be a a child, uh, the woman's child, in this case Eve's child, who will smite the serpent, strike the head of the serpent, and in that way eliminate the one who incited the man and woman to break covenant against God. Um, and, and that first child is Cain, and he's described like Adam, a mm. worker of the ground. Uh, but that, but then when he when he rises up against his brother, and, and I think that's interesting in the way this is phrased, rise the woman's conquering seed. Uh, well, Cain rises up against his brother Abel and slays him. And when God questions him, I think those are opportunities for him to confess. Um, and, and he evades the question and asks, am I my brother's guardian? You know, much like Adam was the guardian of the garden. And uh, eventually what we find out here is that Cain gets cursed. You're cursed from the ground. So he's identified there as the seed of the serpent. He's described in the same language of the serpent. No longer is he a son of Adam. He's a son of the serpent. And, and we might wonder, well, how can this be? And, and what does it mean for the serpent to rise up? Well, before Cain had killed Abel, when, his, when he was disheartened, God spoke to him and said that sin is crouching at the door, and you must rise up against it. You must dominate it. You must crush it. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Well, I think we have, in a figurative sense, the serpent as sin. The serpent is yeah. on guard against Cain. He's, mm-hmm. he's watching out for him, and Cain must crush him. And, and I think every person that comes after that, there's this individual who will be the chief serpent crusher, but the, just as the serpent can, can appear in other forms in, in sin, I think, so too are we to rise up as serpent crushers ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we fail to do that, we identify with the serpent and, and we essentially have a, can respond and join the seed of the serpent line, or, or we can respond in keeping with the seed of the woman. So when it says um, to, to bruise in us the serpent's head, I think that's just an admission that each of us left on our own are just like Adam, and we're just like Cain. And when that serpent rises up within us, that's us rising up as the seed of the serpent. Mm-hmm. And, and we need a mm-hmm. merciful crushing. We need a mercy mild that preserves us, but crushes uh, the the seed of Adam that's within us mm. and raises us to new life in the second Adam. And I think that's why this regeneration, this new birth language is so mm-hmm. um, important in this song is that we are uh, by default evil from the youth onward. And so we are inclined to be the seed of the serpent. And so here we need Christ to to be the salvation from the outside that we will never find on the inside. And this brings with it great hope because I think each of us have that experience of knowing sin is rising up against us. And instead of fighting against it, we join we join its mm. side and we fight against those who love God. Uh, so that that's how I would take this and reflect upon it. But I'd be interested in in hearing the way you guys understand mm-hmm. that. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I think your explanation made perfect sense to me. And 
yeah, crushing the the sin and that rebellious nature that tends to rise up and having Christ do that for us. It's, he's our only hope. We're dead in our sins. We're followers of the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians tells us. And apart from Christ, we're, we're lost and ruined, and we need him to rescue us from the serpent. Yeah, and I, I think this brings out the dual um, response, human responsibility that you talked about, and then also the need that we have for God to help us in that. And, and, and this is asking the desire of nations to bruise in us the serpent's head. And so as we fight sin with everything that we have, we, we do so by asking God to keep, help me to keep killing my sin, help me to keep mm-hmm. killing my sin. Um, so I, that's not much to add, and that's what you were getting at, but I, that's probably what I'd add a little bit. Yeah, well, along these li- well, Josh, any anything else to add there? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, along these lines, I want to talk about three things that might be of interest to you guys and and maybe to others. The first is a really well-known painting or picture that's yes. called Mary Consoles Eve. Yes. Now, sometimes this picture gets debated a little bit, but of of interest to this is that you have two women, one Eve and one Mary, who are facing each other, um, and Eve is pictured there with a serpent wrapped around her leg and holding an apple, uh, you know, picturing this this forbidden fruit, and, and Eve is consoling, or Mary's consoling Eve as preg- this pregnant woman is mm-hmm. reaching out to her, and if mm-hmm. you look at Mary's feet, her head is on the head of the serpent. Now, there's a Catholic interpretation of this photo, <laughs> and, and maybe that's the authorial interpretation Ooh. that, as well, where, where Mary participates in this in, in a unique way, but what I think it's imaging forward is that the seed of the woman does this, and of course, we would look to Christ on the cross, who does this finally. Uh, I think it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3, Jesus is connected to a son of Adam, and, and then Luke chapter 4, he Jesus is tempted by the devil. And at the end of that, Jesus responds with the word of God. He responds as, as Israel should have, as Adam should have. Uh, and it says that the devil departed from him for a while. And then we get the sense that on the cross is when Jesus crushed, crushes the serpent with finality. Um, victory is declared, the serpent's dead. And, and this picture images that forward. And, and I, this is the background on my computer. I, I just really enjoy and am encouraged by reflecting on this. Yeah, and, and um, I, I think the way that we can kind of, if if this is the authorial intent, which I'm not sure is Catholic, we can just say it's really important that Mary is pregnant mm-hmm. and that there is a, a forward as as the Eve in this picture is almost in a sense looking forward. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mary is looking backward as the new Eve. And, and this is such a beautiful, I, I'm right on top, right right with you, Aaron, that this is a beautiful image that I think we can mm-hmm. use and find a lot of meaning in this. Um, but this is the beauty and the surprising nature um, role that women play in the um, in the biblical narrative is a beautiful mm-hmm. thing in that they bring forth life and they they hold this almost latent hope in their bellies every time that yeah. uh, someone is to be born. And I, I, I'm right there with you. I love and, this And image. I think what's interesting there is over and over in the Old Testament, you have barren women. Mm, and yes. and we, we think of the virgin birth as the miraculous birth, right? The miraculous conception in, in that sense. But 
I think that the we have a larger idea of death and and resurrection, and you have some of these women where it's like Sarah God visited her yes. and did what He promised, and I think that's just as miraculous as is the virgin birth uh, of Jesus. Mm. And and then in other texts, you like Ruth, as we're studying at church now, she was married for ten years without a child, and then she's she marries Boaz, and then. God granted to her to conceive. And, and of course, she's the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king of Israel, the one in whom, you know, the, Jesus is the greater son of David. And over and over again, we have these miraculous births mm-hmm. of the seed of the woman. And in contrast, the seed of the serpent comes really, really easy. Lot's mm, daughters. Yes. Very yes. easy. But then there are also unique times where you imagine that the seed of the serpent is cut off before it can even be born. Mm-hmm. So you have this account in Numbers where uh, they've Israel's been worshiping Baal, the false god, and, and there's been a plague, there's been, been punishment, but there's this man who takes a Midianite woman into the tent and Phineas runs a spear through them, and it describes it as a spear going through her womb. And so yes. often you hear about mm-hmm. the womb being barren. Well, here it's almost as if the seed of the serpent is cut off before anything can happen. And so one interesting study, if, if you're reading through the Bible this year, this coming year, would be to notate every time you come across a barren woman and a pregnant woman and try to identify how does this connect in this larger story of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Mm. Related to that is an article that you guys might find interesting <laughs> on a, a website called Mere Orthodoxy. And the the title of the article is The Seed of the Woman, Mary Among the Protestants. And they're discussing essentially what we're discussing here by a, a couple of fellows, Matthew Emerson and Lucas Stamps, uh, a couple of Baptist guys who I, I enjoy their writing. And this article would be of interest um, and then there's a book that might be of interest for those who really want to get into the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent thing. There's a, a compilation of essays in honor of a, a guy named T. Desmond Alexander called The Seed of Promise, The Sufferings and Glory of the Messiah. And the cover photo is of a serpent with a, a well, kind of this leg coming down, crushing it. Uh, but the first essay in there is by a, a professor at Southern named Jim Hamilton. And the title of that chapter is called The Skull-Crushing Seed of the Woman in our Biblical Interpretation of Genesis 3.15. Uh, that was a delight to read, and if you want to borrow it, you're, you're more than welcome to. But those are a few resources that connect to Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. <laughs> well, Aaron, Ethan, thank you guys for discussing this hymn with us. And uh, Ethan, do you have any closing thoughts for us as we enjoy this rich hymn throughout the Christmas season? No, just keep singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing and think well about it. Sounds good. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more at resurrectionmn.org.